0: a site set aside to perform the preparation for purity from death, is suddenly set aside as a cherished burial place for the Jewish people. The location where once the ashes were prepared to purify from an encounter with the grave became a site of Jewish graves. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 47, The Mount of Olives and Jewish Immortality. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1871, William Seward, former Secretary of State under Lincoln, toured the Holy Land. The book about his journey describes an unusual encounter by his traveling party. Quote, As we sat on the deck of our steamer, coming from Alexandria to Jaffa, we remarked a family whom we supposed to be Germans. It consisted of a plainly dressed man with a wife who was ill, and two children, one of them an infant in its cradle. The sufferings of the sick woman and her effort to maintain a cheerful hope interested us. The husband, seeing this, addressed us in English. Mr. Seward asked if he were an Englishman. He answered that he was an American Jew, that he had come from New Orleans and was going to Jerusalem, This mother, it turns out, was ill and had journeyed halfway around the world with her children in order to pass away in the Holy Land because, as the memoir of Seward's trip puts it, quote, the Jews throughout the world, not merely as pilgrims, but in anticipation of death, come here to be buried by the side of the graves of their ancestors, end quote. It is a very moving and astonishing story. This woman comes to the Holy Land to be buried. To die this young with a child still in the cradle is to live a life cut tragically short. But in choosing to be buried in a place where so many centuries of Jews exhibited in death their love of the land of Israel and their faith in its future, she thereby joins her own finite life with Jewish immortality, embodying eternity at the very moment of her own passing. This is a story of death, but also of life, and a striking application of one of the most famously mysterious passages in the Torah. We have seen in our journey through Leviticus how the biblical laws of ritual purity embody the Jewish celebration of life, the biblical emphasis that it is in this world that human beings, as both body and soul in unison, can sanctify existence. Thus, impurity in all its forms is associated in some way with death or with loss of life-giving powers. Again, it is not usually forbidden to become impure, and it is often obligatory. Burying one's relative is a profound obligation and an exquisite act of love. And yet, once that encounter with the dead occurs, impurity is experienced, and only after a series of purification rituals can such a person enter certain spheres of the holy in the temple or tabernacle. What must one do in order to achieve purification? For certain lesser forms of impurity, immersion in a mikveh, in a certain type of pool of water, is sufficient. And we have previously addressed how the impurity of one wrought by the mysterious affliction known as tzarat is undone. But how is the impurity incurred by the encounter with the dead counteracted? It is here, at our point in the Book of Numbers, that the Torah introduces the law known as the adumah or the red heifer, the red cow. This animal serves as the source of a substance that, once prepared, provides purifying powers. The ritual of this preparation is performed not in the temple or tabernacle, but outside the sacred, but in the sight of the sacred. Chapter 19, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring thee a red heifer, faultless, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came a yoke. And ye shall give it to Elazar the priest, and it shall be brought forth outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Elazar the priest shall take of its blood with his finger, and sprinkle of its blood, toward the form of the tent of meeting seven times. By sprinkling toward the tabernacle, as commentators explain, the priest links this ritual to the site of the sacred. The entire animal is then burnt, and we are further informed in verse 6, and the priest shall take cedarwood hyssop and crimson material and throw them into the fire consuming the cow. The ashes produced here will be utilized to purify those who have common contact with the dead. But what is going on here? It is important to stress that for the rabbis, the law of para'adumah, the red heifer, is considered one of the rules of the Torah that is known as a chok, one whose explanation is not entirely understandable to us. But we can try to discern some of its significance. As before, the hint is the hyssop. We have seen earlier how blood, the symbol of life, is utilized in purification rituals in removing impurity, the symbol of death. Hyssop is often used to apply the blood and remove impurity. So it was with the application of the Paschal blood in Egypt. And with the purification ritual in Leviticus of the Mitzorah, one afflicted with Tzorat, where hyssop, cedarwood, and scarlet material, crimson material, are used to apply the blood and thereby bring about purification. Here with the red heifer, as Jacob Milgram has written, the cow is itself an embodiment through its redness of blood, of life. Thus, the ashes produced by it, in combination with these other purification materials, embody a sort of concentrate with purifying power. That is why the ritual of the red heifer, though performed outside the temple or tabernacle, is called a chatat, the word utilized for offerings of purification on the altar. The ashes of the red heifer are placed in water from a spring And the water is then sprinkled over the impure person twice over seven days. And hyssop, again, is utilized in the sprinkling. Verse 17 and 19. And for the impure they shall take of the ashes of the burning of the chatat, and living water shall be placed along with it in a vessel. And the pure person shall sprinkle upon the impure on the third day and the seventh day, and on the seventh day he shall purify him. The phrase for the water here, mayim chayim, living water, highlights again the Jewish celebration of life of the sanctifying power of life in this world, describing thereby that this is how the impurity incurred by the encounter with death is overcome. But why, ladies and gentlemen, does this law, this passage, appear here? Would it not have made more sense to discuss the purification ritual of Para Aduma in Leviticus? The answer, and I draw here on a suggestion of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, lies perhaps first and foremost in the decree Delivered several chapters before, that following the sin of the spies, much of Israel is doomed to die in the desert, with only the descendants of those who die entering the Holy Land. And indeed, soon after, we will read of the mysterious episode of the rock, in which Moses himself is told that he too will die with them, and Aaron also. Moses' own striking of the rock occurs after the death of his beloved sister Miriam. Thus, the 40 years in the desert were haunted by the grisly specter of death. And the introduction of the red heifer at this point, if we may extrapolate, signifies how Judaism and its love of life seeks to overcome the domination of death. It is therefore striking that while the ritual of the red heifer was performed throughout Jewish history by the high priest, here in our text, it is Aaron's son and designated successor, Elazar, that is obligated in the ritual. Now, at this point, Aaron is still alive. The law is communicated both to Moses and Aaron. Again, verse one is, "And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron." But looking to the future, the law is given to Aaron's son, thereby linking the ritual of purification from death with family continuity. And in the chapters that follow, twenty-six and twenty-seven, the focus will also shift from death in the desert to continuity, to the inheritance of the land, and to the story of Tzolofchad, a man who dies without sons, and by divine decree, his daughters are granted the request to inherit his portion in the Holy Land, and thereby perpetuate his memory. Immediately after this tale, Moses, knowing that he will die in the desert, sanctifies Joshua as his successor. Thus, there is perhaps a hint to the fact that while Aduma involves purification from death, one significant form of Jewish immortality is found in taking one's place and forming a link in the chain known in Hebrew as Knesset Yisrael, the intergenerational assembly of Israel. It is with this in mind that we can study a fascinating feature of Jewish history. The Mishnah describes how during the Second Temple period, the preparation of the red heifer was performed on the Mount of Olives, Har Hazetim, east of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. A bridge, according to the Mishnah, would link the two mountains. And atop the Mount of Olives, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the heifer toward the temple, joining the ritual thereby to the mountaintop in Jerusalem that is the holiest site on earth. With the destruction of the temple and the rarity of red heifers, the ability to produce the ashes necessary for purification eventually disappeared. So that ultimately, everyone is considered today by Jewish law to be in a state of ritual defilement. For everyone in some way comes in contact with. The dead. But because, as we shall see, later passages in Scripture describe the end times as bound up somehow with the Mount of Olives, it was on that mountain that generations of Jews chose to be buried during the many centuries of exile. Thus, they came to Jerusalem from all over the world, not only to die, but to be buried in that site, overlooking the place where the temple once stood, to be buried at the very location where once the priest crossed from the temple across the Kidron Valley in order to perform the preparation for purity. Thus did the Mount of Olives, once the location of the ritual of Parah Aduma, become the most revered Jewish burial site in the world. And it is presumably on the Mount of Olives that the Jewish woman met by Seward's traveling party was ultimately buried. It is a striking inversion, a site set aside to perform the preparation for purity from death, is suddenly set aside as a cherished burial place for the Jewish people. The location where once the ashes were prepared to purify from an encounter with the grave became a site of Jewish graves. The message, perhaps, is that the refusal to forget Jerusalem, the desire to be buried overlooking Jerusalem, the desire to join scores of preceding generations that chose their internment in that site, paving thereby the path for the generations that would come in turn, the forming of a link in the continuum that is the countless generations of Jewry, that is itself also part of how Judaism addresses death, responds to death, defeats death. One of those Jews buried on the Mount of Olives was the mother of Israeli chief rabbi Shlomo Goran. Following the War of Israel's Independence, Jordan held the old city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. In his memoir, Rabbi Goran describes a trip taken with the Arab Legion arrange a negotiation between Israel and Jordan to retrieve the bodies of fallen Jewish soldiers. He writes, quote, The route to Jericho went past the Mount of Olives, and when we reached the spot nearest my mother's grave, I asked the officers to let me stop and pray for a few minutes at her grave, which was a few dozen yards from the road. I explained that the entire time the Jordanians controlled Judea and Samaria and East Jerusalem, I could not visit my mother's grave. They refused and would not even let me pray from a distance. They told me that stopping there would be in violation of the instructions of the Jordanian prime minister and would endanger my life, End quote. Thus was Rabbi Goran denied the opportunity to visit his mother's burial site, thereby illustrating how, for around 20 years, Jews from Israel were barred from entering the old city of Jerusalem and from ascending the Mount of Olives to commune with the memory of their ancestors. Meanwhile, over these very same decades, Graves on the Mount were desecrated, and testaments to the love and loyalty of Jewish generations were thereby destroyed. Thus, 1967 marked not only the Jewish return to the old city of Jerusalem, but also to this mountain overlooking Jerusalem, the return to the graves of beloved predecessors. And Rabbi Gorin, the man who himself was a witness to these miraculous moments, thought at that time not only of history, But also of his own family. He describes how he had sought his mother's grave only to discover that it had been destroyed. Quote When I found the spot indicated on the map, my mind went numb. There was nothing left at all. The tombstones had all been plundered and dismantled. I couldn't even find the upper slab. I searched the entire area for a whole day. The following day, Hebron was liberated and I went there. Later, I returned to continue my search and slowly descended the hillside. I suddenly saw an upside-down stone that seemed familiar. I turned it over and saw that it was indeed my mother's tombstone lying 300 yards from her grave. I immediately hired laborers to take the stone back to where it belonged and I contacted a tomb builder who could rebuild my mother's tomb and place the original slab on top. A few days later, mother's tomb was rebuilt, topped by the original slab with the inscription of all the things we had written in her memory. Thus, I felt that another circle had been closed this time in honor of my mother, End quote. It is a moving moment, a tale of encounter with death, but also immortality. The gravestone of Rabbi Gorin's mother marks her mortality, but also her link to the past and to the future, a future in which her son can come to visit her in love. On the week in which we marked the bar mitzvah of one of my own sons, I went with my family to visit the graves of three of my grandparents, who are buried on the Mount of Olives. Standing there, joining those alive in this world, and those alive in a different way, we embodied four generations, overlooking Jerusalem, preparing for a ritual celebrating the future, celebrating life, celebrating sanctity, celebrating the endurance and the eternity of the Jewish people. I stood there and thought of the bridge that, according to the Mishnah, once connected the Temple Mount to that place. And as I stood, I felt that the bridge was there again. But it was a bridge between two worlds, between those who had come before and those who would follow, as I realized that it was this site of Jewish death that truly embodied a people that would never die. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together next week, signing off.